know, as I was preparing for uh, this lesson and even for uh, the sermon upstairs, um, listen to a, a, another preacher preach a, a message on hell, and, and here's what he said. He said, studying hell will either drive you crazy or drive you to Christ. And, uh, and man, I'm telling you, until you've actually delved into this, uh, that is so true. That is so true. You know, there's kind of like, here, here's where we think about hell. And then here's the kind of like the reality of it. And when you stick your heart and your face into the reality of what hell is, you will not remain the same. And it will. It will either drive you crazy in the sense of this is so unbelievable, unthinkable, intolerable that I, I must change it. Or you will say, I must run to Christ because... I must escape this, and I must help others to escape this. So I would appreciate your uh, your prayers and uh, and your attention on this as we look at hell, fact or fiction. Now I've got uh, two quotes there at the top of your notes. I want to start with quote number one is from uh, a, a Jehovah Witness leader. Okay, a cult. The second quote is from a man who just not too recently died who was an evangelical scholar, leader, and who once was a champion of the inerrancy of the Bible. So you've got two extremes here. You've got a cult and a conservative, once conservative man. Listen to what they say about this doctrine of hell. And now, who is responsible for this God-dishonoring doctrine? And what is his purpose? The promulgator of it is Satan himself, and his purpose in in introducing it has been to frighten the people away from studying the Bible and to make them hate God. And, you know, he is relatively true in that. Many people will refuse to study the Bible and will refuse to believe in a God who would be in any way connected with such a doctrine or such a reality as hell. But notice what Clark Pinnock says. How can Christians possibly project a a deity of such cruelty and vindictiveness whose ways include inflicting everlasting torture upon his creatures, however sinful they may have been? Surely a God who would do such a thing is more nearly like Satan than like God, at least by any ordinary moral standards and by the gospel itself. Wow. Wow. Listen, those aren't crazy quotes that Chris comes up with. That, that, those are the opinions that float and, and, and are propagated and are, are promoted, and, and, and they're out there. And if we, I think if we're really honest, they are sometimes the ideas that, that float around around the surface of our conscience. And this series is intended to create, create that little tension, to surface that little confusion. And, and, and I really think that sometimes what these godly men do is they have good hearts and they look so hard at this doctrine that they go crazy rather than running to Christ. And so let's take a look at this. Hell, fact or fiction? 
what's this series about? It's about three questions in one. Is Jesus the only way to salvation? That's the one question. The first question that comes out of that is the one we're looking at today. Will anyone, will anyone experience eternal conscious torment under God's wrath in hell? Now, universalism answers that question how? You ought to know this by now through this series. How does universalism answer that question? No, exactly, no. Everyone, including the devil and his legions of demons, will one day be saved. They may be doomed now, but they are doomed to one day be saved. Annihilationism says what to that answer? Will anyone? What does annihilation say? No, the answer is no. They say no. Why? Immortality, that is living forever, is a conditional gift given only to those who are saved. The unbelievers will be annihilated. They'll be destroyed. They cease to exist on the day of judgment. Yes, they'll burn, but they'll burn up into extinction. Uh, yes, they'll be destroyed in hell, but that's just it. They'll be destroyed, and they will never again have to suffer. And their suffering is merely the lack of existence. But here's what the popular belief says. What do you think the popular belief says uh, in answer to that question? Yes. Uh, yeah, yes, and no. Really, it's maybe. I would say maybe. And the reason why, Rick, is because only about 50% of Americans say they believe in hell. So when you ask this question, will anyone there, it's a 50-50 chance what you're going to get. But even those that say yes, it's really a maybe. Why? Look at what it says. Maybe, but I'm not going there, nor are any of my families or, or, or family or friends. You know, By the time you're done with it, those who have never heard aren't going there. I'm not going there. Anybody I love and I you know, appreciate are not going there. And maybe Maybe just some bad guys like uh, Saddam Hussein or Adolf Hitler or uh, bin Laden are going there. Uh, listen, many Bible-believing pastors and people are drifting or purposely choosing to reject the biblical reality of eternal judgment. Now, even whole denominations, the Anglicans, the Episcopalians, uh, have uh, rejected this doctrine of hell. Everything's moving in a direction to reject it. And yet, this is a fundamental doctrine of Christianity. I want you to stop and think a minute. Think about John 3.16. How much more fundamental, simple, basic Christianity can you get than John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him, oops, should not what? Perish. That's hell. That's the fundamental doctrine of hell. But turn your Bibles to Hebrews 6. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews 6. I want you to see in Hebrews 6... 1 through 3, just how fundamental, how basic, how critical this doctrine is to basic Christianity. In Hebrews 6, Hebrews 6, verses 1 through 3, the author of Hebrews says this, Therefore, leaving the discussion of elementary principles of Christ, leaving the ABCs. Remember when you were a kid and you went into kindergarten and what would be around the top of the, of the, of the walls of the kindergarten room or the first grade room? What was always what used to be around there? The alphabet, the ABCs, the fundamentals. Hey, learn this, kids, and then you can move on and go to Harvard. Now, notice what he says. Leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ... Let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation, and here's the ABCs, repentance from dead works 
and of faith towards God, the doctrine of baptisms, a laying on of hands, a resurrection of the dead, and of what? Eternal judgment. These are the ABCs. Listen, forsake this and you've forsaken your foundation. And so, this is basic, right? Now, I would think most of us here would say yes to this question. Will anyone suffer conscious, eternal suffering under the wrath of God in hell? But we cannot assume that. We took a survey, a doctrinal survey in our church, and, and not everybody you know, agrees with these kind of things. But here, here's what I want you to realize. Many of us would believe that. Many of us would affirm that. And yet, when's the last time you heard a full sermon, a full sermon on hell? Now, if you were in our class, it wasn't that long ago. It was 2009 because we did a series on Luke 16. Remember, the rich man and Lazarus, one minute after you die, and we did a whole lesson on hell. But really, how often... See, we assume hell, and we warn people of hell, but I don't think we really explain what hell is, and we don't always apply it to our own lives and what it means in relation to witnessing and to the people we encounter. You see, at the end of the day, the question of whether anyone will experience eternal conscious torment under the wrath of God in hell can only be answered by one person, and that's Jesus Christ, the founder of Christianity. And here's what he says. Jesus says, yes. Jesus says, yes. People will suffer eternal conscious suffering under the wrath of God. And here's how he says it. He answers this question by saying, yes, and I love humanity enough to come to earth and warn them about it and become the way, the truth, and the life. You see, Jesus cares enough to tell us that there is a hell. And isn't this ironic? Because here's Jesus, loving Jesus, Loving Jesus, forgiving Jesus, and yet do you realize Jesus spoke more on hell than anyone else in the whole entire Bible? You see, you can speak with conviction and compassion. And I pray to God that you will hear the compassion and the tears in my voice. Because listen, the, the, we do not teach on hell to get our jollies. You know, We don't teach on hell because we are glad that people are going there and we're not. We teach on hell because it's a part of the reality of, 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 of the universe that God has created and people's lives hang in the balance. I want you to turn to Matthew 25. Matthew 25, 31 through 46. Matthew 25, 31 through 46. This is just one of many places that Jesus speaks and warns us of the reality of hell. Matthew 25, 31 through 46. Now notice what he says. This is Jesus speaking. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory and all the nations will be gathered. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from his goats. And He will set the sheep on His right hand and the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right hand, Come. You, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom, notice, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. What he's saying is, because of your faith in me, you lived the life of a true believer. And you did it because of me, for me, and through me. When... When did we see you, a stranger, and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and, and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Hey, let me just put a plug in here for what we were talking about, world outreach. Every time we serve in this church, when we serve the brethren, when we meet needs, and we do it out of a faith and a love for Jesus Christ, Christ takes notice. Isn't that amazing? Then he will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick. And in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also. Then they also will answer him, saying, "Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you?" Then he will answer them, saying, "Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me." And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Two paths, two directions. Now notice verse 41. Because in verse 41 is what this entire lesson is based on. From first, verse 41, we are going to see seven facts about the reality of hell. You can take that one single verse and in, in fact cover the realities of hell. So let's look at the, verse 41 again. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Let's look at seven facts about the reality of hell. Fact number one, hell is real. That's basic. It's an overview. It's a basic generalization, but it's true. Hell is real. Notice, then he... That is, Jesus will also say to those on the left hand. Here's the fact. The fact is, Jesus is talking about hell as a real place, not an abstract you know, philosophy. Not something that's just out there. Not nothingness. Not, uh, well, we're not sure. It sounds bad, but who knows? It may... No, he's, he's, he's talking about a real place. Now, how many of you are Beatles fans? Besides uh, uh, Kim. Okay, we got some Beatles fans. John Lennon's most famous and enduring song is called what? Imagine. It is played at the Olympics. It, it, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a song that is championed, and, and in many ways it, it's beautiful, and yet listen to what he does. In this song, he makes a bold claim in the first verse concerning heaven and hell. And here's how it goes. Imagine... There is no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Now, we can imagine all we want that hell is not there, but Jesus says what? It is, and it's real. 
You see, while Anglican and Episcopal churches now describe hell as nothingness, Jesus describes hell as an actual place with actual people undergoing actual torment that he calls those who go there cursed ones. In Matthew 10:28, listen to this. Jesus says, "Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell." He's speaking to his disciples, some that will be sawn in half for the gospel, some that will be beheaded, some that will be stoned to death, some that will be whipped with the cat of nine tails within an inch of their life. And he's saying, you know what? That's nothing. That's nothing. Don't, don't, don't be afraid of that. What you need to be afraid of is entering into eternity with a soul and a body and there to be tormented for all eternity. Do you, do, can, can you imagine what he's saying here? Hey, he's saying it's real. See, there's a lot of places in this world that I'd like to imagine don't exist. For instance, I'd like to imagine that the garbage dumps around the megacities of this, na- of this globe do not exist because in those garbage dumps are orphan children who live off the trash of others. In fact, there's entire families in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and other uh, countries and, and nations and cities like that where entire families not only live on the trash, but they live from the trash. They feed. I would love to imagine those places as not existing. But I can imagine it all I want, and they're still here today. They're there today. You see, it doesn't really matter what I think or what my opinions are. What matters is what's real. And Jesus said, hell is real. See, in the same way, those who find it unthinkable that a God of love would create a place called hell, a place so awful that they cannot bring themselves to think of it or think of people they know there, and most of all, think of themselves going there, they can choose instead to deny its existence and convince themselves that it's not real. But the reality is, it's still there. It's still there. Hell is real. Fact number two, hell is separation. Hell is separation from God and every one of His good gifts. You know, in James, it says, Every good gift comes from above, and it comes from the Father of lights. So when you're separated from God, you're not only separated from God, but you're separated from every good thing God gives. Now, I'm, I'm in my, I'm just like having a glorious time right now, because this is my favorite time of the year, and I just love, I'll, I'll pick up Amber, or uh, meet her after school, and I'll say, Amber, is this just not a beautiful day? Can you smell it? Do you smell the people are getting their fireplaces going, and, and we're anticipating our pumpkin patch visit, and visit. I mean, I, you know, I love that. And you know what? Every time I do that, I, 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 I remind myself, this is a gift from God. This is a gift from God. This, this isn't to be taken for granted. This is a gift from my Heavenly Father, and it's part of His goodness. And let me tell you, there's no fall smells in hell. There's none of the things you enjoy. There's none of the things that we so make life worth living. Those things are stripped away because they're a gift from God. Notice he says to them in verse 41, Depart from me. Depart from me. Now, Tim Keller is a great postmodern pastor in the heart of New York City. And here's what he says about this phrase, depart from me. In the teaching of Jesus, the ultimate condemnation from the mouth of God is depart from me. Now that's remarkable. 
To simply be away from God is the worst thing that can happen to us. Why? We were originally created to walk in God's immediate presence. Do you know what the glory of, 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 of the Garden of Eden was? It was to walk in the cool of the day with their Creator. With their Creator. To simply be in His presence. And for Him to be in their presence. And that's what hell is. Turn, it's, it's separation from that. Turn to 2 Thessalonians 1.9. 2 Thessalonians 1.9. I think this is probably one of the most important verses on hell. Because it really strikes to the heart of it. Look at 2 Thessalonians 1 9. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction. But what's the worst thing about it? From the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. And remember, power is that ability and that blessing and all the goodness that comes from God that gives life and makes everything worth living. The uh, New American Standard says, away from the presence of the Lord. The NIV takes an even stronger uh, uh, translation and says, shut out from the presence of the Lord. But I really like Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. Here's what he says about the punishment. Eternal exile from the presence of the Master and His splendid power is their sentence. Eternal exile from God. Wow. Do you realize that in Luke 13 and Matthew 7, both in Luke 13 and Matthew 7, Jesus says these words, depart from me, depart from me. And the irony of those two passages that if we had time we could look at, he says that to people, many people, both passages says many people, he will say to many people, depart from me. And the reason it's so radical is the many people think they are on his side. They think they're going to heaven. They think they're in. They think they are part of his followers. And he says to many, he will say on that day, depart from me. I never knew you. And here's what he calls them, workers of iniquity, workers of wickedness. And they're like, huh? What? They're just like the people in this What? I didn't think I was that bad. I thought I was pretty, I, I thought I was with you. I thought I was a Christian. And he says, I never knew you. Because here's the thing, class. Being a Christian is not about what you do or don't do. It's about who you know and your relationship with him. And does everything you do flow out of that relationship? And many will, he will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. Hell is separation from God, but it's not separation from God completely. Do you see that in your notes? Hell is separation from God, but it's not separation from God completely. Why? Because God is where? God is everywhere, and if God is everywhere, then where is He? He's also in hell. So are you getting attention? Depart from me, and it's separation from God, and yet it's not a complete separation from the presence of God. So how can we explain this? Well, first of all, God is everywhere, even in hell, and that's what makes it so awful. The separation is not from God completely. It's a separation from His love, His grace, and His mercy. And then all that's left is God's wrath, God's judgment, and God's holiness. That's what it means. All that's left is that. One writer put it this way. 
A breath of relief is usually heard when someone declares, Hell is a symbol for the separation from God. To be separated from God for eternity is no great threat to the the unrepentant person. The ungodly want nothing more to be separated from God. Their problem in hell will not be separation from God. It will be the presence of God that will torment them. In hell, God will be present in the fullness of His divine wrath. He will be there to exercise His just punishment of the damned. They will know Him as an all-consuming fire. You see, people want God out of their lives and they think, oh, hell won't be that bad because I'll be separated from God. No, you're separated from His love and His grace, but He'll be there in His wrath and His holiness and his, He is a consuming fire. Listen to Hebrews. 10.31 It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 14. This is probably one of the most disturbing, most profound, and yet it's a true verse that's in the Bible. Revelation 14, and we're going to look at verse 10 in particular, but let's look at verses 9 through 11. I just want you to see that it's separation from God, but not a complete separation from His presence there. Look at Revelation 14, 9 through 10. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone. But look at this phrase. In the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Sweet Jesus, sweet Lamb of God, who died for the sins of the world, who has a glorified body that still has the nail imprints on the wrist and on His feet and the, th- and the, and the spear into His side. Loving Jesus will be there, observing, ruling over the torment in the fire and the judgment for all of eternity. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Hell is separation from God, but it's not a separation from God completely because God is everywhere, even in hell. Therefore, as we learned last week from Jonah, you can run from God, but you cannot hide from God. Even in hell, You cannot hide from God. Psalm 139 says this, If I make my bed in heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, which is a symbol for death, grave, and in the New Testament it becomes the meaning of hell. Even if I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. Wow. Wow. Can you imagine being in a place where you are on fire for all of eternity and you can't even have one little drop of relief. Not even one ray of hope. Not even one cool breeze. 
Not even one pleasant smell. Not even one kind word. You are there for eternity, separated from God and all His goodness. Wow. Fact number three. Hell is for those cursed by God. Hell is for those cursed by God. He says, depart from me, you what? You cursed or you accursed. Now, there are two groups. There are two groups at the judgment in this passage, Matthew 25. And what are those two groups? Help me out. The sheep and the goats. But these two groups are throughout Scripture described by many names, aren't they? Sometimes it's, we call them the saved and the unsaved. I should right hand. Saved and the unsaved, right? Sometimes they're called the repentant and the unrepentant. Sometimes they're called believers and unbelievers. Sometimes they're referred to as those who are clothed with righteousness and those that are naked before God unrighteousness. Sometimes they are called the righteous, the unrighteous. Sometimes they're called the blessed and the cursed. The problem is there's only two groups in this life. There is no middle ground. And those that are in hell are the unsaved, the unrepentant, the unbeliever, the naked, the unrighteous, and the cursed by Christ. Now, what does it mean to be cursed by Christ? Turn your Bibles uh, to... to, uh, Uh, Mark chapter 11. Let's look at Mark chapter 11 real quick. Mark chapter 11. What's it mean to be cursed by Christ? What's it mean in this context of Matthew 25? But we're going to look at Mark 11 where Jesus curses a fig tree. Jesus curses a fig tree. It's an illustration of what why Jesus curses and how He curses and what's the results of it. Notice Mark 11. Let's look at verses uh, 13 through 15, then we'll drop down and read 20 through 21. And seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he could find anything on it. Hey, it looks healthy. It's leafy. It looks like great potential for fruit. So he looks if he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he answered and he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. He curses it. And his disciples were listening. Now let's look at verses 20 through 21. And as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, behold, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. This is the kind of curse that a person receives who has no fruit of a relationship with Christ. That's what the story is about. The nation of Israel had all the outward trimmings of a right relationship with God, but they had no fruit. They had no fruit. And so he says to Israel, in a sense, depart from me, I never knew you, because I do not see in your life the fruit of your faith in God. In Matthew 25, it's not that the people who give food to the hungry and care for the needy go to heaven because they did those things. Rather, these people did those things as a fruit of their relationship with Christ. They did it out of faith in Christ. They did it out of a love for God and others greater than themselves. Because they knew Christ, it was as if they were giving all that ministry. They were giving it to Him because they loved Him. Because they had a relationship. 
Listen, if a person does not have the fruit of a relationship with Christ, they will experience the withering curse of Christ in hell, even though they may have all the religious leaves, even though they may come and and, and study their Bible, they may take notes, they may give, they may do all the right things, but in their heart of hearts, they do not have that relationship. You see, most people in the world spell religion how? How do they spell getting to heaven? Yeah. Do. I must do. I must do. The only problem is you must do all that God requires all the time. Look, let's look at this. Uh, Think about this way. When famous people die, you ever watch the cartoons in, in the newspapers? What happens when people die? Everybody goes where? Every famous person goes to heaven, just like most every funeral you've gone to, everybody goes to heaven. I mean, no one sits around in funerals and goes, and more, I've, I've yet to see a family mourn that their loved one is in hell for all of eternity. Rather, everybody's in heaven. When Frank Sinatra died, they had in the paper a picture of him walking into the pearly gates with his overcoat over his shoulder singing, I did it my way. Okay, Right here in Kansas City, when Arthur Bryant died, the Kansas City Star has a cartoon, and I look at it every time I go to Arthur Bryant's moment of silence. And here's what it says. He's walking into the pearly gates. Jesus is Jesus has his arm around him, and he's asking him, "Did you bring the sauce?" <laughs> now, Matt, I, I, I laugh at that every time, and then I ask forgiveness. And the reason I do is because, listen, every, this is not who's cursed. Who is really cursed? The Bible says you don't have to wait. See, here's the problem. The vast majority of the world thinks this, that you live your life trying to be the best that you can, and then you die, and when you die, you hope that when God weighs the good, God will weigh the good and the bad that you have, what what you did in life, and what is the assumption? And and what's the assumption then? That how how many people does the good outweigh the bad? What's the assumption? Everybody, because we're not as bad as who, as Hitler or Bin Laden or some other nasty person at work that I can't stand and made my life miserable. It may be your spouse. (laughs) I don't know who you're comparing yourself to. Spouses looking at each other. You weigh out now. The Bible says you don't have to wait until you die to know whether you make it or not. You don't have to wait to discover if you're cursed or blessed. Turn the Bible to Galatians 3.10. Turn your Bible to Galatians 3.10. See, the idea is, in life, I just don't know. Life, I don't know. Death, I hope, and what I hope is that the good will be greater than the bad. But here's what Galatians 3.10 says. Galatians 3.10 For all who rely on the works of the law are under a what? You know what it's saying? It's saying everybody who is relying on this, the works of the law. I hope that I've done more good than I have done. Everybody who is relying on that is what? Cursed because... What's going to happen? Their bad always outweighs the good because who's the measurement of the good? 
Jesus Christ for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Did, did God has God or Christ ever sinned? No. And if He's the standard, do we all, where do we all end up? Cursed. Cursed. We all fall short. None. There's none righteous. No, not one. None are good enough. I am not good enough to get to heaven. I can't preach well enough. I can't be a pastor. I can't become a missionary. I can't become Mother Teresa and be good enough to go to heaven. The Pope isn't good enough to go to heaven. Nobody is. Because notice what else it says. For it is written, Cursed be everyone... Now here's the kicker. Who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them? All. I've got to do everything all the time, perfectly. Not only abstaining from sin, but I must do the right thing to think the right thing, be the right person 24-7. Now, I know some of you ladies think your husbands ought to measure up to that. But, listen, they don't measure up to that, ladies, and let me clue you in on something. You don't measure up to it either. Why am I looking at you? I don't I'll look over here. You don't either. Poor Terry over there by herself. That's the reality. That's the reality. I love Peterson's paraphrase. Listen to this. And that means that anyone who tries to live by his own effort, independent of God, is doomed to failure. Scripture backs this up. Utterly cursed is every person who fails to carry out every detail written in the book of the law. And who has done that but Christ alone? So what is our hope? Well, look at Galatians three eleven. Look at verses 11 through 14. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. It's not what you, have, you do. It's what Christ has what? Done. Christianity is not spelled D-O. It's spelled D-O-N-E. It's what Christ has done. And it's our faith in what He has done, the perfect one, that then means that we are blessed with salvation. Notice what it says. For the just shall live by faith, yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. You can get into heaven by doing the law. It's just that you've got to do it perfectly. So you can do that. It's okay. Go this route, but just make sure you do it all and you do it perfectly. But notice what he says. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He was crucified on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit. How? Through faith. Faith in Christ means we get the blessing and we are blessed and that's how we escape the curse now there's more that we can say on that but i want you to look at two verses john let's look at john 8:24 turn your bibles john 8:24 john 8:24 my point is this those that go to hell are those who are cursed, and each one of us is born cursed. Each one of us is under the curse. Notice John eight twenty four. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. You see, we don't have to do anything and we're cursed. 
And there's only thing, one thing we can do to not be cursed, and what is that? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn over to John to uh, to John three. Turn back to John three thirty six. Turn back to John three thirty six. Notice what it says. John three thirty six. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. That's present tense. Right now, if you believe right now, you have eternal life. You don't wait until you die to figure out if you're saved. You can know today. You can know today for sure that if you died tonight that you would be in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice what else it says. And he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides, present tense, on him. We're already cursed. We don't wait for the judgment. The judgment just declares what's already true. Hell is real. Hell is separation. Hell is for those who are cursed. Number four, hell is eternal. Hell is eternal. Hell is eternal. He says, depart from me, you accursed, into what? Everlasting or eternal fire. The question is raised, what does the word eternal mean? Well, let me show you uh, two verses. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Look at Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Daniel chapter 12. I'm going to show you two verses. One out of the Old Testament, one out of the New Testament. And I want you to see what eternal, this word eternal means. Because this is where people, the debate comes. Look at Daniel 12.2. Who can read that for us? And these, those who sleep in the dust of earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame, and everlasting Do you see the contrast? Everlasting life? How long is eternal life? What is it contrasted with? Eternal contempt. How long would that be? Forever. If you shrink one, what do you do to the other? You shrink the other. If you're going to shrink eternal for hell, what do you have to shrink it for heaven? You have to shrink it for the same thing. Now, that's the Old Testament verse. Look at Matthew. Go back to Matthew 25, the very chapter that we're in. Look at Matthew 25, and let's look at verse 46. Look at verse 46. Jesus says, These shall go away into what? Everlasting punishment, but the righteous into what? Eternal life. Point is, how long does the life last? How long does the punishment last? Forever. You can't see. You cannot get away that how we view hell is related to how we view heaven. And if heaven is going to be eternal bliss, then hell must be eternal judgment punishment and torment. Now, here's where human reason, this is their big argument. The, even the, These scholars, these uh, guys who used to be biblical that are now compromising on this doctrine, here's what they ask. Human reason thinks this way. And it's a pretty, you know, from a human, you know, if, if, if I didn't know the Bible and I, and I didn't really focus on God and I just thought, human reason, let's weigh this out. Let's think this through. Why must I receive eternal punishment for a limited amount of sin? 
If I live 70 years at the max, no matter how much I sin, it stops the day I die. Why punish me forever? Why must a person get eternal punishment for only 70 years of sin? Here's the point. My sin is finite. It begins and then it ends. But the punishment's eternal. And human reason screams out one phrase. That's not fair. That's not just, that's not loving, that's not right. Why is eternal torment for temporary sin? Why infinite judgment for finite rebellion? Why is the length of the judgment longer than the length of the sin? And here's God's revelation. You've got to think, listen, you've got to put the Bible above your human reason. Listen, if you will reason your way out of hell, you will reason hell away, and you will reason your way out of heaven if you do not put the Word of God and God's revelation over human reason. We must submit to what the Word of God says. Why? Because God's bigger than us, brighter than us, smarter than us, and far more holy than what we can imagine. Here's the two revelations. Here's the answers. Number one, we must understand the greatness of the person against whom we have sinned. We must understand the greatness of the person against whom we have sinned. Listen to what David said in Psalm 51. He had committed adultery... He had murdered an innocent man who was his loyal soldier. He had committed two of the grossest, most heinous sins you can imagine, murder and adultery, and here's what he says. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. In other words, God... I did this against you, and no matter what you do, you are right and just in what you render. Well, what about this sin against these people? Well, yeah, but the sin against the people was really a sin against who? Against God. Now, if you murdered me, my wife would be upset, and you'd be in trouble, right? If you murdered me, you would be in trouble. And you might go to jail for a long time. In our system, maybe not so long. But let me tell you this. You assassinate the President of the United States and you will go away and you will go away for life and you will not get parole and you will never come out. Now, is my life more important than the President's life? No. But is he greater than me? Is he a greater authority than me? Is he, is he more vital to the interests of our nation than me? It's shocking, I know, but indeed... There's other... Anyway, I won't go there. You see, our sins are not against the President of the United States. We have sinned against the sovereign ruler of the universe, an infinitely holy God against whom we cannot comprehend the greatness of our offense. Here's what John Piper says. He says, The point of our sin is not measured by its length, but by its height. It's who we sin against, not how much we've sinned. It's who have we sinned against. Against you and against you only I have sinned. And because you are eternal, the offense is eternal. Because you are infinite, the offense is infinite. Because you are great, the sin is great. It's not how much I have sinned, it's who I've sinned against. And then number two, the sin never stops. Just because we die 
The sin doesn't stop. You will never read of repentance in hell. No one repents in hell. When we studied Luke 16, we saw that the rich man was suffering. He was out of his mind with suffering, and yet he never once repented. And he kept treating Lazarus as his lackey, and he kept giving orders to God. He's in hell, and he's giving orders to Abraham and telling where... Lazarus needs to go and he's not like broken over his sin. Listen, the, the, the rebellion against God goes on for eternity because people live for eternity and the sin is so great because the God is greater still. Therefore, God is holy and just and right in repaying sinners in hell with eternal torment. It's at that point we're going to have to stop. It's at that point that we will pick up but I want you to I want you to think. You put your notes away, but I want you to stop and I want you to think before you close out. How have you been thinking about hell? Has it been with your human reason or has it been with God's revelation? Here's the point. The greater here's we have made God less and we have made less of our sin and that's because that's why we do not understand these issues when you make much of god as he ought to be made of you will then make more of your sin and then hell we be, will become the reality that it really is listen we don't we think our sin sin is less than what it really is and it, and the reason we think that is cuz we view our god as less than he really is And beloved, I know only one way to correct that. You've got to be in this book. And you've got to be witnessing to lost people because there's a dynamic in witnessing that humbles us, burdens us, and drives us to our knees. And as long as we're fearful and isolated and keeping our mouths shut, we miss this dynamic of embracing people and seeing the hardness of their hearts and realizing, wow, if God, if you don't intervene, nothing's going to change. Powerful stuff. The Word and people. You've got to get those things into your lives. Let's pray. Father, I'll just be honest, God. I knew I wasn't going to get through this. I mean, I, I just know. I know that. This class knows that. But I didn't want to do this another Sunday. I just didn't want to do it another Sunday. This is a great burden. And yet, Lord, you're a great God. And you are so much more holy than what I can comprehend. And my sin is such an offense to you that your own son had to die and suffer eternal torment just to pay the price of my sin, much less the sin of the whole world.